In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Now, Advent is not for the faint of heart. Because of our discomfort with anything apocalyptic in Scripture, we have tried very hard to put as much distance as possible between ourselves and the uncomfortable reminders of our forthcoming judgment and God's second coming. We try our best to focus on sweet, soon-to-be-born baby Jesus, and we try to see Advent as a liturgical countdown towards Christmas, because that's something we can all look forward to. And well, we should. But Advent was never meant to merely be a preparatory season for Christmas. Mary Jane Hamig describes a traditional celebration of three Advents. The first one is close to what I've just described without perhaps the high-gloss sweetness of commercialism painted over everything. It's Adventus Redemptionis, the incarnate Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate. It's the incarnation, Christ's first coming. It's Christmas. But the next two Advents are just as crucial to understand and to also celebrate if we want to have the full picture of the liturgical season we've just entered. Adventus Sanctificationis, the presence of Christ in word and sacrament. It's what we're doing here today. Whether you're streaming online for our worship service or whether you will be bundled outside up on the lawn and masked. But the third is also one that we have to keep in mind and celebrate if we want to have the full picture. Adventus glorificamus, Jesus' second coming, his coming in glory to judge us on the last day. Now, Advent is a liturgical season unlike any other in the church year, in part because we celebrate these three Advents simultaneously. While every other season looks back on the things that the Lord has done, and it follows the life of Jesus, Advent boldly looks ahead to what God has promised to do for his people in his second coming and his judgment of the earth. Now, if all this talk of judgment has you feeling discomforted, take heart, because this is the Lord we are talking about who loves us beyond measure. And I hope by the end of this sermon, we can embrace the coming judgment with awe, gratitude, and perhaps even joy. With this fuller understanding of Advent in mind, let's look at our texts. Isaiah 64 opens with one of my favorite images in all of Scripture. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence. As when fires kindled brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Isn't this precisely what God did for us? Yes, at Mount Sinai, but for me, when I hear this passage, I imagine that terrible, glorious moment where Jesus breathes his last and the curtain in the temple is torn into from top to bottom, from God to us. And the Holy of Holies is plainly visible for all of us to see even as God the Son hangs spent, raised up at Golgotha, our perfect sacrifice. 
The sky is dark, the ground quakes, for surely this was the Son of God. It's the ultimate act of love for us. But in Isaiah, God has not acted yet. This reads like a community lament to my ears. Oh, that you would, because you haven't yet, God, is the implication here. The people remember what it was like when God did act on their behalf by protecting and providing for them, but that is not what their relationship is like now. The people rebelled against God, and they're being oppressed by the forces of Assyria and eventually Babylon, and eventually will find themselves in exile, and God is described as being angry. The chapter ends with a plea for God to take up the cause of his people and fix the horrible mess that they've made. After all of this, this is how Isaiah 64 ends. We didn't hear it today, but this is how it ends. After all of this, will you restrain yourself, Lord? Will you keep silent? Will you punish us so severely? Will you do nothing? Well, I cannot speak for any of you, I can assure you that in my own moments of pain, sorrow, or misery, that this is the question that has come up in conversations with God. And reading this passage shows me I'm far from the only one who has said this to him. It is a comforting and deeply frustrating thought. Will you do nothing? It's in this vein that Asaph wrote Psalm 80, which is a prayer for restoration. Things are not okay. And together we read the words, Restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we might be saved. Now it seems a bit obvious, but you have to highlight it here, that if the people are asking for help, for restoration, something has gone amiss. We heard in Isaiah that the people sinned and that that had accounted for the distance between them and the Lord. But in this psalm, the people's wrongdoing is quite neatly sidestepped and tacitly acknowledged at best. They describe the very real sense of abandonment and the suffering that they are experiencing at the hands of powerful foes. But instead of ending the psalm in praise, like most psalms usually do finish, this psalm ends with the people promising to renew their loyalty to God if he saves them. And by the way, would you mind please just saving us? I think we need to ask ourselves some questions here, but the one that I'd like to start with is, why is it that we as people, why do I feel okay asking and praying for God to come and fix something, or maybe to heal somebody, or maybe to help somehow, but I still feel uncomfortable with the idea of God's judgment, as if those are two separate things. What exactly is the problem here? I think if we're being honest with ourselves, most of us harbor fear of finding ourselves being judged by a perfectly holy, all-powerful God because we are afraid of what he could do to us. We are afraid of what thoughts words or deeds will be dragged out into the open, unable to be concealed any longer. We're afraid of not being enough. We're afraid of being punished. 
We're afraid of being rejected. We know that God loves us, but we are afraid. And so too often we follow in our spiritual ancestors' footsteps and we try to hide ourselves from God like Adam and Eve did in the garden. But God will come to us just as he came to them and found them. And when he does come, he will judge us all just the same. Nothing can be set right in this world without this divine judgment taking place. Hang on to that for a moment and say that again. Nothing can be set right in this world without this divine judgment taking place. I'm going to read a longer quote here from Ben Myers, uh, and I think it describes perfectly what God's judgment will look like. It is a great comfort to know that one day someone else will come and lovingly separate the good from the bad in our lives. The confession that Christ will come as judge is not an expression of terror and doom. It is part of the good news of the gospel. It is a joy to know that there is someone who understands all the complexities and the ambiguities of our lives. It is a joy to know that this one, the only one truly competent to judge, is full of grace and truth. He comes to restore, not to destroy. Christ's judgment will be the best thing that ever happens to us and to our world. On that last day, all the weeds will be removed at last, and for the first time, we will be able to see the truth of our lives and to know that in spite of everything, we are loved. When I first read that quote, it stopped me dead in my tracks, and I've had it in my mind ever since. I had never heard of God's judgment spoken of in such a positive and encouraging way, let alone as being seen as the confirmation that we might need to know that we are loved by God. And so I sat with this in prayer. And this is what I heard. Our ultimate restoration comes through God's judgment, not in spite of it. It's what we are asking for when we sing the words, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and it's what we pray for when we say, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. If this is true, then we shouldn't be terrified of the judgment that comes with the second coming of Christ. We should embrace it as the means by which we can be made whole by the one who loves us the most. Maybe we can even yearn for it. And yes, I imagine it will sting a little. But we will always and forevermore and have always been in the tender hands of the great physician. Fleming Rutledge says it this way, Advent is not for the faint of heart. To grasp the depth of the human predicament, one has to be willing to enter into the very worst of it. And I would add that this requires us to take a real honest appraisal of ourselves and the world around us. The good news, though, is that Jesus Christ did exactly this with his first coming, by emptying himself and taking on human flesh and dwelling among us and dying for us, 
and we know that he will come again to set all things right. It's not just the good news, it's the best news. But what do we do in the meantime? We know from our gospel reading today that while Jesus' return is guaranteed, everything else fades away, but the Lord's words will remain, and he says he's coming. We have no idea when this moment will be. So we are called to be ready for him to come at any time. Like the examples from our recent parables of the last few weeks of the bridesmaids with the groom's late night arrival, or the tenants who don't know when the landowner is returning, we too have to be ready. But we are also called to bear witness to Jesus, to live holy, righteous lives overflowing with grace and love for one another, faithfully following the Spirit as he tends to the church in his here and now. We are called to share the good news in this in-between time we are living in. Fleming Rutledge, again, says it like this. The disappointments, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of the future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. We live with pain, brokenness, suffering, and more all around us. We have all heard and know that the calling of the church is to place itself where God is already at work. At the second service today or at the outside service, we are going to commission some of our very own as Stephen ministers to be set apart to walk alongside those who are suffering as they wait expectantly for God to bring healing. It is a ministry of presence where the Stephen minister is uniquely present to someone while recognizing that all they can offer is Jesus himself by trusting in the Holy Spirit. This is the work that they have trained extensively for and they have worked hard to be ready to do. But let's not forget that this job of caring for one another, of bringing the presence of Christ to one another, is not just the job of these dear souls, but for all of us. This is all of our job. We are an Advent people. We like to think of ourselves as the Church of Perpetual Lent, but I got news for you. The church in this age, on this side of the cross, has always been an Advent people. It is our job to watch and wait for the Lord to return, even as we live out the reality that Jesus Christ, Emmanuel himself, died and rose again out of his tremendous, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love for us all. Let us be vigilant and steadfast, watching and waiting, living and loving one another until he comes again, because he is coming. Amen.